welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and today I'm starting a series of podcasts that have uh, been generated by the uh, Triennial Congress at Baskan in Edinburgh University, which is uh, the Baskaners British Association for the Study and Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect. And it was a phenomenal affair, four days. 800 delegates all on child protection it was just like a kind of a huge festival of ideas and exchanges and networking and opportunity now today i'm going to uh, let you hear uh, the kind of cum- the culmination of of the congress uh, an interview with john devani who chaired the congress and who's the chair of bascan um john's from queen's university belfast now he gives us a sense of what actually happened there and um, what his impressions were. But uh, then I'd like to follow it up with a, a, a shorter interview I did with um, Sue Berlevitz, Berlevitz, who's the Deputy Children's Commissioner for England. And she's going to be talking about the initiative that they did, or are doing, if you like, um, See Me, Hear Me, No Longer Invisible, which is out at the moment being piloted by three local authorities and it's a an excellent initiative to do with hearing children's voices now future podcasts are going to feature alan baird chief uh, social work advisor to the scottish government sean holland chief social services officer and the deputy secretary office uh, at the office of social services in northern ireland um, professor harry ferguson uh, from Nottingham University, a good friend of this programme. And the, the kind of centrepiece, one of the centrepieces, as it were, of the Congress was the debate that they were having on mandatory reporting. And for that, for the motion, that mandatory reporting should be um, turned into law in England and Wales, was Peter Garsden from Abney Garsden Solicitors. But Peter's been responsible for or at least 25 class actions uh, on behalf of survivors of sexual abuse over the years. And opposing that from uh, the University of uh, Denver in Colorado, um, Associate Professor Jill McClee, um, giving the American experience. But I'm going to add a little bit of extra flavour into that and actually talk about Ben, uh, let let you hear another one, a, a third podcast I did with Ben Matthews from the Australian Centre for Health Law Research at Queensland. And uh, he's been looking at the last 10 years of data, if you like, to do with mandatory reporting, which has been kind of widespread in Australia, albeit in different guises. So that's a fascinating subject. And, And as soon as this general election's over, I really think we're going to find that that's one of the sort of top 10 or 15 items on the agenda is is how we actually deal with child protection in this country and mandatory reporting or not. Um, So that's coming up. And so I've got an absolute sort of feast of podcasts for you all over the next few weeks to listen to. And I'm also aware that a lot of the presentations from the Baskan Congress are going to be put, uh, made available from their website. So... Buckle in. Here we go. But first, tonight, John Devani. Oh, 
Okay, hi. I'm joined now by John Devani, and John is the chair of BASCAN and has been the chair of this incredibly successful congress that we've had here in Edinburgh University. Welcome, John. Thanks very much, Stuart. Um, I want to talk to you about his impressions, final thoughts, things you've learned, things you've been so pleased about here, things that you would have liked to have gone to see that you didn't, anything, you know, just the whole kind of, let's, let's do a wrap-up of Congress here. How's it been? How's it, how's it impressed you? I've really enjoyed myself and I think that's been for a number of reasons. Firstly, we've had a terrific welcome by the people of Edinburgh and Scotland who have really embraced Congress coming to their country and their city and have been keen to sort of tell us about what's happening in Scotland at this moment in time in terms of improving uh, the lives of children and trying to ensure that interventions are much earlier and the benefits are longer lasting. Alongside that, we've been overwhelmed by just the number of delegates that we've had, but in a very positive sense, we've had 600 delegates from the UK and another 200 who have traveled from outside the UK. And it's great not only to be able to share knowledge and understanding between the five countries that Bascan represents, between England, Ireland, Northern Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, because we don't do enough of that sharing, because I think we've got a natural experiment going on whereby we're very similar between the five countries with different statutes and law and with different approaches to how we try and tackle the same issues. But we're also extending that learning to looking at what's happening in other parts of the world and talking to people from Kenya, from Canada, from Australia, from Germany, from Norway, Sweden, allows us to think about, well, actually, there's lots that we do in this part of the world, which is very good and that we can share, but there's also innovative and useful ways of thinking about how we might respond to the very complex issues that many children face by looking at what's happening elsewhere. So I think one of the things I've taken away from Congress is the importance of communities of practice, about people who are interested in similar issues finding ways to continue to have a dialogue and the dialogue that's begun here shouldn't be restricted to these four days. They should be continued beyond now to our next Congress in three years time when we'll be meeting in England. You want obviously Bascan to maintain its um, very proud record of kind of um, good practice, good knowledge, child abuse review etc, you know, the, the things you publish and put on. I gathered you were thinking maybe at some point of moving this to a biennial event as well. Is that is that right what I've heard about that? It is, David, and um, we've planned to hold the next Congress in three years' time in 2018. And from that point, we'll hold Congress every two years. So the one after that will be in 2020. And the reason we think that we need to hold the event more often is because our members have been telling us that. They say it's a long time between congresses and actually there's a lot of very exciting work being done by practitioners, by agencies, by researchers and people are a bit anxious that it seems a long time to wait to be able to find out what is happening and working well in one place that might be transferable to somewhere else. So from, tw so from 2018 we'll then move to a two yearly cycle and I'm really excited about that because we've also committed to moving congress around 
all of the countries that we represent and it just means that it can come back to Northern Ireland just that wee bit sooner. <laughs> okay. Um, obviously this has impressed a lot of people, the Congress and what Bascan was capable of and, and the kind of, if you like, the kind of show you can put on to do shorthand. I mean, obviously I would hope that people would want to join the association as well after this. I mean, what message would you like to give to those people who might have attended or uh, read about Congress or whatever? I mean, because it seems to me it's a very valuable association to belong to if you're a, if you're a practitioner, a researcher, an academic, whatever. I mean, what message would you like to give out to people who are thinking about it? Being a member of BASCAN actually doesn't cost very much. And by the time you claim back your tax, because it's sort of uh, uh, in your income tax return, you can sort of uh, uh, claim back the tax that you've paid. Actually, it works out at about a pound a week. And actually, that pound a week gives you access to a network of colleagues across disciplines who are passionate about the same issues that you are, but also gives you access to resources and information that would be much more expensive to access um, if you were trying to buy it off the shelf, whether it's receiving a copy of the journal Child Abuse Review as part of your membership six times a year, whether it's turning up at learning events or congress and having a, a significant di discount on attending, or whether it's becoming part of a local branch where you can meet with other colleagues in your area and outside of the constrictors of your own agency, be able to share learning, share knowledge and talk about the issues which are presenting at a very local level. And we have some excellent thriving branches around the country where people really value that opportunity to get peer support two-way, that they're able to support others and others are able to support them. And actually there are no other organisations or forum for doing that. And actually there is something about us collectively having a voice about standing up for children and standing up for families but also standing up for professionals who are doing what is a very complex job in difficult circumstances and contrary to sometimes public perceptions, doing a very, very good job the vast majority of the time. I know uh, I've been talking to you before and I know talking to your colleagues as well that you, the, there is a perception, to be fair, that BASCAN is mainly for, for more and more for established practitioners, established academics, established people, but that's not true, is it? You, you really are very, very keen, is my understanding, to get young blood, to get young, newly qualified or people just start starting out on the road in to actually enliven a lot of the BASCAN kind of delivery, if you like. Is that fair to say? I think that's a really important point to raise, David. Because we do see in terms of new members every year, a significant proportion of those new members are people who are just entering the profession and are keen to learn and are keen to find avenues of support alongside the formal support within their agencies. I joined when I was a student back in the 1980s, so I've been a member of BASCAN now for nearly 30 years. And actually there's been no point during those 30 years where I felt that I haven't got value for money out of it all. Um, and therefore I would encourage any new practitioners whatever discipline they're coming from to actually give it a try because mm -hmm. actually they'll find that once they've signed up to become a member and seen some of the, be the, the benefits of membership that actually they feel that actually the cost of it is very little but actually the benefits that they receive in terms of support knowledge and understanding far exceeds that there's been a, such a range of the Congress here, this is sort of a final few points, but there's such been a range of disciplines involved, a range of pres presentations, 
I mean, it's almost, to be quite fair, it's almost overwhelming in terms mm -hmm. of choice, isn't it? I mean, and, and the idea of Congress as opposed to conference means that you've got to make all these multiple choices all the time about yes. what you go and listen to and what you go and see. But thankfully, you managed to sort of have a good trick, if I might say, this year by putting people on twice mm -hmm. and so that people could cut some of the keynotes and some of the main presentations. I mean... Has that worked? Do you feel that's worked this year? What's the, 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 the I think it has because listening to the kind of the voices on the ground. But I wonder what your view was. Yes, we were sort of needed to do it this way because um, with eight hundred people coming along, there's very few venues in a university that can hold all eight hundred people in the one go. And splitting the keynotes into a morning presentation and afternoon presentation means that the presentations have been typically given to between three and four hundred people, which actually means that if you're a delegate, actually it's a much more personal experience rather than being in a room of eight hundred people. I think you're right that that has allowed people to not only hear the presentation, but to actually ask questions at the end that would be much more difficult to do if it was a much larger auditorium. Plus also it means that the keynote speakers, many of whom have stayed throughout Congress, have been around and about and have been very generous with their time in terms of talking to people individually um, about the issues that are relevant to practitioners and here's an opportunity to speak to the Deputy Children's Commissioner or the uh, uh, ACPO lead for child protection within the police or the Chief Social Worker for Scotland and I think that's where else would practitioners find the opportunity to have that opportunity to talk about the issues that are relevant for them to people who are have very influential positions within the system. I know for myself from chairing events and suspect it's the same for yourself today um, you're often so concerned that things are going to go correctly that you're kind of you know all over the place you're looking to this you're wanting that you're checking this you're checking that have you been able to enjoy it I've had an absolute ball I don't think I've slept very much <laughs> and that's not just because of hard work it's because we've been so well looked after and there's been a really good social program around the conference because if people are talking about what are very difficult and emotionally challenging issues during the day. You want people to feel as though they have an opportunity in the evening time to relax, to get to know each other, to network and actually enjoy a bit of this fine city. And so we've been very fortunate that there's been great hospitality from the university, great hospitality from the city. And last night, if some people have sort of looked at the Twitter feed from Congress, they would have seen the uh, uh, tweets that were going out about the Cayley that was held. Um, I'm not a dancer. Uh, there were some people on the dance floor who weren't natural oh, dancers, dancers, but they were certainly enjoying themselves, <laughs> David. Yeah. Okay, thanks. So finally, message to well, message to all the listeners, because you know there will be people out there who weren't able to come, who who might just be discovering Congress from some of the podcasts we're putting out, or, or, or looking at some of the activity. Why should people be interested in joining Bascan now? You've said before the reasons for it, but. I also think there's a camaraderie issue mm -hmm. that possibly you might agree is important as well. It's so good sometimes to be among friends, wouldn't you agree? That's right, David, and that's why we're a membership association. It's to support individuals mm -hmm. and to make people feel that while they're doing complex, complicated, challenging uh, and emotive jobs, that actually there are other people around who are there to support them and be very willing to support them. Um, and I've gained an awful lot of knowledge and understanding through being a member of BASCAN over nearly 30 years, but actually I've also made some very good friends who are dotted around these five countries, 
but that I can pick up the telephone too, that when sort of I bump into the meetings or conferences, we can talk about things without it feeling as though um, I'll be judged because sort of I don't understand something or I'm worried about something. And I think that camaraderie, that sense of having good friends who are good colleagues and good colleagues who are good friends has been one of probably the reason why I've stayed involved with Bascan for all this time. Well, John Devaney, congratulations on a very, very good Congress and thanks for talking to us. And thank you, David, for all of your help and support as well. Well, that was excellent. John, appreciated. Thank you very much indeed. Now, this next podcast, I said, is uh, Sue Borelovitz, who's the Deputy Children's Commissioner for England. And um, Sue is outlining here the See Me, Hear Me, No Longer Invisible uh, piece of research commissioned by the Office of uh, the Children's Commissioner in England. So, without any further ado, Sue. Hello, well, I'm joined today by Sue Borelovitz, who's the Deputy Children's Commissioner for England. Welcome, Sue. Thank you. And um, she's going to just talk to us briefly about a recent new initiative, No Longer Invisible, See Me, Hear Me, and uh, how that came about, what your objectives are with that, and how, what kind of outcomes you would like to see, if you'd just like to describe how that came about. Thank you. Um, it came about because of the National Inquiry uh, that the Office of the Children's Commission was running, in which I was chairing, into child sexual exploitation in the context of gangs and groups. Uh, and one of the things we were extremely concerned about was um, how the child protection services were failing children who are victims of sexual exploitation. So we developed a new conceptual framework for child protection, which I have to say I think applies across the whole of the child protection spectrum, not just in relation to sexual exploitation, although we're piloting it in the first instance in relation to children who are victims of sexual exploitation. It's entitled See Me, Hear Me, because what was so apparent to us during the course of the inquiry was that the victims are largely invisible. These are children that society really neither wants to see nor hear. We're in a slightly better position now. The country has woken up to the issue of sexual sexual exploitation. Um, So some of those victims are being uh, recognised now, but too many of them still are not. And there is no doubt that children who are black or from an ethnic minority, children who are disabled, children who are learning disabled as well as physically disabled, um, remain very, very hidden uh, amongst those who are victims of child sexual exploitation. Hence calling it See Me, Hear Me. It's about making sure that the child is placed right in the heart of the child protection process. It's not something done to children, it's done something with children and it's about the right service for the child at the right time and for as long as it takes. Um, We developed it together with young people who were themselves victims of sexual exploitation and it uh, consists of three components, the voice of the child, the voice of the professional and there's a third component that relates to the agencies. Um, The work with the voice of the child, as I said, was developed entirely with young people themselves who were victims. The uh, component around the voice of the professional was developed together with professionals who are working in this field. uh, And then we tested it out back with them, really. Um, It consists of a series of 
questions that need to be answered and none of them will uh, can be satisfied by a simple yes or no answer. So they are detailed questions which require detailed responses. So for example, the young people said to us that um, they need to be helped to understand that they are victims. So the first question is around, what makes you think I'm a victim? How do I know that I am a victim? So it needs somebody to sit down and engage with that young person, to talk them through, and it's not a one-off discussion, that is a process. Um, how will I know that the plans you're making for me will keep me safe? So it's not just about saying to a child, this is what we're going to do. How do I know that what you're planning is going to keep me safe? You need to develop that in conjunction with me, the child. My residential care placement um, needs to involve me uh, in all those plans. What support will you give me if this goes to court? Again, a detailed response is required to that. For the professionals, for example, we're trying to in a sense, force managers into a situation in which they have to recognize the importance of supervision, training and support for their staff. This is very, very complex work and people deserve um, all the support uh, that they should be getting around this. So the professionals wanted us to ask questions around um, supervision and support. Um, what is the supervision you're going to be providing for me? How will I know that when I have to make a difficult decision, you, my managers, are going to back me? Um, how do I know that when I have to challenge somebody who's in a more senior position, and the example that often came up was, for example, a police officer having to challenge a pediatrician in terms of um, a diagnosis, uh, how will I know that you are going to back me in that? Uh, so it, it is about people having to really give detailed answers and it's not a one-off. These are processes that need to be returned to over and over and over again. Now we're trialling this across three local authorities in England. The trial and evaluation are being run for us by Sussex University, being led by Barry Luckock at Sussex University. Um, it's being trialled in Brighton and Hove, in Sandwell and in Oxfordshire. It's very much an active learning process about theory of change uh, and it is collaborative across the three local authorities so we're all slightly different models um, but each will be learning from each other and we hope that the joint learning will add up to something quite big. Uh, and then we and Sussex will be getting the messages out as they arise. We're not going to wait right mm. until the end to publish. Sort of time scale. Yes, well there is a two-year time scale on this but if the findings are uh, telling in terms of improving practice, we want to get those messages out sooner rather than later. So we will be getting those messages out as they begin to arise. Of course, there will be a summative report at the end. I, uh, find, I, I chair a Safeguarding Children's Board right. and I'm very involved with the actual chairs, the national chairs right. and regional chairs. Uh, what sort of message would you give to the Safeguarding Children's Boards? Because obviously I can see their role being reasonably important in actual the implementation yes. of this? It's very important. Um, the chairs need to be robust in asking questions and challenging, there's a lot of noise outside, <laughs> um, what's going on in their local authority areas. They need to make, you know, if people are not coming forward with data about um, the scale of child sexual abuse in general and sexual exploitation within their local areas, they need to be asking about that data and requiring it uh, to be brought to them. They need to be ensuring that the problem profiling is done 
um, within their local areas to identify those children who are at high risk of becoming victims. Because uh, we've got two lists out there of the risk signs that the signs children show when they're at risk and the signs children show when they're already victims. Just look at those and look for those children. Follow the children, you'll find the perpetrators. They need to be profiling the high-risk perpetrators or those at risk of being perpetrators in their areas and uh, mapping any children who are gang-involved or living in gang-involved neighbourhoods because all those girls are at very high risk um, and developing programmes accordingly. So a really proactive stance from safeguarding boards um, pretty much all safeguarding boards now have policies around sexual exploitation. However, having a policy does not mean the policy is turned into action. So it's about ensuring that the action matches the policy and, uh, and matches best practice. Thanks. Just one thing though, you mentioned, um, I think quite reasonably, that there may well be quite a high resource implication to this in terms of training, certainly. Are you finding that you're hearing that there will be probably a buy-in to this, especially in times of austerity? Well, there's some buy-in. I think there needs to be more buy-in, quite frankly. Um, but, you know, I do feel frustrated when I read serious case reviews that cost an awful lot of money to produce. Why wait for children to be seriously injured or indeed to die? And children have died from being sexually exploited. I was in one police area where they talked about children, three bodies unrecovered. Um, children who were abducted and, and sexually, uh, they were raped, but I mean, we talk about rape, um, and were then murdered. Uh, but, you know, any type of child abuse is horrendous. Why wait for that to happen before spending the resources on finding out why? And then I'm afraid not always learning the lessons, as we know too often happens in relation to serious case reviews and not applying them. Spend the money up front. Get it right for children now. It's better for children, it's better for society, and it's better for everybody's budgets, quite frankly. So I'm guessing what you're saying is that the three authorities who are piloting the, the, the initiative at the moment, but you, and you said you weren't going to wait, you were actually going to distribute the, the information as and when it, it happens, because I suspect all the other authorities, in order to implement any training or to actually plan for any training, budget for any training, will need to actually see what's being suggested first. So, uh, that yes, and uh, I mean, clearly training is an issue, but the, the training uh, agencies, you know, the universities also need to be looking at what they're doing for their social workers at the point at which they're actually going for their initial social work training. Um, schools need to be making sure that when they have their inset, stay, inset days, they're really covering child protection effectively. Some police forces have been very proactive in terms of making sure that training is being done across all of their officers and, you know, to, they are command and control and they can make that happen. And, and many of them are doing that and that is laudable, really. So if all agencies need to be doing that. It is cost effective to make sure your staff are well informed and well supported. Um, I go back to the issue of, you know, it costs a lot of money to have things go wrong. It costs money to society and it costs money to the local authority when they then start commissioning serious case reviews. Let's get it right first time. Um, in July this year, there is the Joint Social Work Education Conference happening, uh, I think it's at the Open University this year, and you're going to get two, three hundred of the social work academics from up and down the UK at that place. That sounds to me like an ideal place to remind them of the message that you're just putting out. Uh, wouldn't that be a good idea? Wouldn't that be a good idea? And it's interesting that uh, I have never been invited to speak on this topic to either that or the ADCS uh, conference okay. that's held in, in the summer of every year. 
uh, I've been asked to speak about this at almost every other conceivable forum, really. Police, forensic physicians, mental health conferences, uh, judges, lawyers, you name it, but not uh, the leaders in children's social care, which uh, is quite an interesting point. I think that's a nice message to finish on. I'd we? be very happy to do that <laughs> anytime. These are important messages. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say that I'm going to be managing the uh, media for that conference right. and I'll pass on your message. The offer is always there. All right. Sue, many, many thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you very, you very much. much. Well, there we are. A couple of excellent podcasts and so much more to come from this Congress. Now, you can download these from iTunes, from Stitcher, from Podfeed. You can go to the website, www.socialworldpodcast.com. I mean, generally, thank my, my thanks as always to all the digital media for the technical side of this podcast. Uh, excellent. Thank you, as always. And uh, as I said, we'll be putting these out within the next few weeks, the, the, the list that I gave you. But please don't stop your comments coming. I really do value them. Uh, you've got um, the SpeakPipe um, facility uh, on the website where you can just quickly one click and record some comments about what you've heard uh, or some ideas for me to think about as to who you might like me to interview next or talk about next. Things, I mean, I can't see everything. I need your help. And I really appreciate the um, consistency of the listeners. It's really pleasing to hear how many of you are actually tuning into this and those of you who are giving me ideas for the next phase. So, thank you for now. I hope you enjoyed it. See you very soon. <laughs>